Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Mary, and I too would like to welcome everyone today to Cancer Care Connects program. This is our sixth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. This is part two, and the title of our program today is Rediscovering Intimacy in Your Relationships Following Treatment. This is a critically important topic for all of you on the call today, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the National Cancer Institute, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it's really because of that collaboration that we have been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on our program today over 1,786 participants. So we have a lot of people on the call today, and it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to join us today for this program. Now, we have many participants from the United States. The most, most of you are from the United States. You come from large cities and small cities, from suburban areas, as well as rural and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Greece, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world as a group of information seekers. Now, I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials is an outline that our speakers have prepared. And there also is information about all the different organizations that have worked together to make this program possible. There's information about some wonderful materials you can access, and I want to highlight one of them, the Facing Forward series that you can access from the National Cancer Institute, which is a wonderful uh, booklet of series. It's just a wonderful booklet for you to have. And there are other materials that you'll hear about during the program as well. Now, there also is an evaluation form, and I would like you to all take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. Who but each of you can best tell us what topics and programs that we should be offering when we plan this program for next year? And we're already starting to think about next year's program. So please do complete the evaluation form. Let us know the topics you'd like us to offer. Today's topic was based on your recommendations from last year. So again, we really take your recommendations very seriously. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to first introduce to you Dr. Keith Belize. And Dr. Belize is Program Director, Health Scientist, Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. And Dr. Belize is going to say some words of welcome to you as well. Dr. Belize? Well, thank you, Carolyn, and welcome to our invited speakers and all the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. It's truly an honor to be able to co-host the sixth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after cancer, after treatment ends. As Carolyn noted, this is the second of three workshops in our 2008 Cancer Survivorship Series, and the National Cancer Institute, represented by the Office of Cancer Survivorship, the office I'm affiliated with, the Office of Communications and Education, and NCI's Cancer Information Services, is pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. As some of you may know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors in the advocacy community to better understand the unique and ongoing needs of this growing population. The, over, the, the overall goal of the office is to improve the length and quality of survival for all those living with a history of cancer, a number which, according to recent figures, includes over 11 million individuals in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities such as this teleconference series that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. The survivorship series represents a series for which the number of participants has grown and continued to grow across the years. Over the years, we have had participants from over two dozen countries on our calls making our capacity to reach those in search of information truly global. Along with our program partners, we are deeply gratified by this response. But at the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. 
The topics we have chosen for this year's teleconference series reflects themes that many survivors have told us present challenges for them as they make the transition from treatment to recovery. As you will hear shortly, our three outstanding speakers are experts in the cancer field and, and understand the importance of addressing relationship and intimacy issues during the post-treatment cancer experience. Again, I am delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Carolyn Mesner, to whom I will now turn the program over to. Thank you very much, Dr. Belize, for the wonderful words of welcome to everybody and for really setting the context for our program today. And today's program, I want to say this whole entire series has been made possible uh, by the National Cancer Institute and the Live Strong uh, Lance Armstrong Foundation. And we really are very um, appreciative for the support that they have given to us over the years now for this program to continue. So I want to thank you for your support of our program today and for this entire series. And now I want to introduce our first speaker. Our first speaker is Deborah Thalia Demiers. Deborah is a nurse, and she is a cancer survivor. And Deborah is going to provide the survivor perspective for today's program. She is a staff nurse, hematology oncology, oncology nurse society, chemotherapy trainer, Stanford University Medical Center. And it's been our tradition that our first speaker in these series is a cancer survivor and pr provides that perspective. So I'm going to turn the program over to Deborah. Hello. Um, I wanted to share with you my experiences um, as a cancer survivor, and I am a survivor of three primary cancers, Hodgkin's disease, skin cancer, and breast cancer. I was originally diagnosed when I was 25 years old and um, shortly after I was married. And so um, intimacy uh, and sexuality was a very important part of our relationship, and we didn't know how our relationship was going to be affected by the cancer diagnosis. And I was quite ill at the time that I started treatment. I was in, in and out of the hospital a lot, and it was in the hospital that we really rediscovered our, um, our intimacy. And I, I just wasn't feeling well, and my husband didn't know what he could do for me. And so he decided that he was going to get in bed and um, spoon me. And for those of you who don't know what spooning is, it's one person cuddles up inside the other person, um, kind of in the shape of a spoon. And you know, we were just cuddling, and he was holding me, and, and kind of one thing led to another, and before we knew it, um, we were having sex in the hospital bed. And uh, shortly after that, the nurse knocked on the door, and, and uh, we said, what do you want? And she said, uh, well, it's time for your pain medication. And I shouted out to her, I'm not in any pain right now. Go away. And we found that um, being intimate and holding each other and, and uh having sexual activity was a form of pain control because it released all those endorphins, I guess. But at the time, I wasn't a nurse, so I didn't know the technical reason for it. We just knew that it felt good to just hold each other. I think that um, one of the other issues that came up in our relationship was communication. I tried to protect my husband from the bad news that I would get, and he was trying to protect me from everything that was going on in, in our household so I wouldn't have to worry about it. And in protecting each other, um, we stopped communicating so much. And my husband internalized a lot of his stress and ended up having a lot of stomach problems because he just held everything in. And when we finally let it out, we found it was much better um, to communicate with each other. And we learned this by going to support groups um, for young adults with cancer, um, it, when we went to just general support groups, we found that we were the youngest people there by about 40 years. But it was much better when we talked to people our own age um, who could relate to some of the factors um, that we were going through. And so communication, I thought, was very key, learning how to talk to each other and not hold anything back. That's also a part of intimacy, where you feel so comfortable with somebody that you can share everything with them and, and not hold anything back. We had to deal with a lot of fatigue. Um, my treatment made me very, very tired. And so it was hard for me to initiate activity. And, and uh, my husband kind of had to push me to um, get up and, and work through the fatigue. And once I started doing things, I felt a little bit better. Um, I had to adjust to um, my new body, particularly after my breast cancer when I had my mastectomy. And, and I really. Um, went through a grieving process of the change in body image. And um, I had to take the time to really learn to love my new body. And I'm finally at the point where I really love myself. I love my body. And if anybody else doesn't like it, it's their problem, because I can live with it. And, and I feel very comfortable in my own skin. 
But that took time for me, and I had to work on it. And I just really had to learn to um, adapt to the, to the new me. I think that it's um, helpful to get information. It wasn't easy getting information about um, issues like sexuality and fertility and intimacy from my doctor. He wasn't comfortable talking about it. Um, now as a nurse, I go around the country and give workshops on sexuality and intimacy uh, for patients and for nurses so they can teach their patients. Um, but, but it's not easy sometimes to find somebody who's comfortable talking to you about this. And if your healthcare provider is not comfortable, then ask them to refer you to somebody who can deal with it. Um, there are uh, sex therapists in every community around the country, and you just have to find out who these people are and who's comfortable talking about it and who can give you the information. Sometimes you have to learn about um, new ways that your body reacts to stimulation. And in my workshops, I'm very specific about this, and I actually bring um, sex toys and different kinds of lubricants and massage oils and things like that. You just have to learn with your partner, you know, what feels good for you now. Um, sometimes nerve endings are cut during surgery and you don't react the same way uh, to different kinds of stimulation. So you have to learn what feels good to you now, what parts of your body um, can be stimulated. I learned that you have more nerve endings in your face than anywhere else in your body. And so to, to look for... Um, Light, using light touch there as, as part of a stimulation and becoming more intimate. And then I think the big lesson that I learned about sexuality and intimacy is that they're, they're not really the same thing and that while sexuality can be part of intimacy, I think that the greater gift is to be intimate with someone, to, to feel that you share a bond with this person, that they're going to be there for you, that you're going to be there for them, that you care deeply about them and they care deeply about you, and that you just feel comfortable sharing your life with them and relying on them and they feel the same way about you. It's a, it's a very, um, well, I don't want to use the word intimate, but it's a very intimate, close, trusting relationship. I guess trust is a good word to put there where you, you really put your trust in the other person and they put their trust in you. And so I think that intimacy is the um, bigger goal, but certainly sexuality um, is a part of that. And that's about all I have to say. Well, I want to thank you very much, Deborah, for really, an, really just a wonderful presentation and also for really setting the stage for our program today in terms of sharing your experience and helping everyone to better understand um, some of the issues that each, each person on the call may be confronting. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Auchincloss. Uh, Dr. Auchincloss is attending psychiatrist, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Weill Medical College of Cornell University, adjunct attending psychiatrist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Now, uh, Dr. Auchincloss is going to cover talking about closeness and intimacy and special issues for survivors and their close ones. Dr. Auchincloss? Hi, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk with all of you today. Uh, I want to share with you today really uh, a contemplation of things we all know about closeness, closeness between partners, between friends, among family members, even work colleagues and neighbors, and to remind us that closeness is not hard to create. Sometimes it creates itself, but not always. And it's so easy in a hard stretch to remember to take care, to create it, to give the extra time, thought, energy to make possible this incredibly valuable, momentary, essential, emotional element in life. Things people have mentioned to me over the years about closeness when they felt close to someone during and after cancer treatment include the little things much more than the big things, the quiet things much more than the played up things. One woman talked about a friend who just stopped by to, to clean up her kitchen, didn't really say hello or goodbye, just let her rest and took care of the kitchen and stepped out quietly again. She felt so moved by that, so understood. People talk about talking, sometimes talking about the important things, sometimes about little stuff. They mention doing simple things together, reading, gardening, watching TV, cooking. They mention listening with your full attention, being listened to, 
just being in the same room quietly, doing different things, but really aware of each other, little written notes, music, humor in all forms, thoughtfulness, remembering special days, including anniversaries of especially bad days during treatment, which survivors often can't forget even if they wanted to, helping them through, someone turning it into a better memory this year, one woman who'd lost her husband to lung cancer was described to me once the day, the anniversary of the death, and, and a friend came by and just wordlessly gave her a single rose. And that meant to her she just felt this person understands. No talk, just the moment. Remembering things together. People talk about touch, especially non-sexual touch, touching of the hair, hands, a caress, a hug. It's gentle, a massage, a neck rub, a foot rub, a bath, all kinds of touch that just helps people feel connected. They talk about food that someone makes or gets for someone else. They talk about favorite things, someone remembering them or doing something that includes a favorite thing of, of the person. And a lot of people talk about surprises, someone creating a little surprise, a good surprise. You know, cancer is full of bad surprises, and any good little surprise is so sweet to someone who's been through it. They talk about someone doing something for someone else that it, that person doesn't want to have to do themselves, like chores or like dealing with somebody or something that they just don't want to have to deal with, someone stepping in and taking care of it. And they talk about doing someone doing something for, for somebody that the survivor cares about, like their kids or the dog or their parents of the survivor. Um, they just felt so touched that this person would get it. That's where your mind is going. I'm taking care of that for you. So closeness can be easy, but it can often also not be that easy. And just like help is giving someone what they're asking for, closeness can be giving someone what they ask for. Learning how to ask is a crucial element. It may not be the same to the spouse as it is to the survivor and vice versa. You know, they're the people who want to talk and some people who just want to be quiet in the same room. And each way can be underrated or overrated by, by the person on the other side. Um, there may be different time frames operating for closeness and for healing, for the spouse on the one hand, for the survivor on the other. Um, but an, one of the guiding principles here is that trying is good. Just trying even to address closeness. The fact that someone is trying matters. People get it that you might not succeed. Asking is important. If you need information, if you want to understand better. It's not crucial that the words are perfect or the action is perfect. It's crucial that an effort is made. And sometimes closeness is so elusive. Um, a lot of people have trouble with their relationships after cancer treatment. After cancer, many survivors feel defective. They feel like damaged goods. They feel less wantable and less worth it. They feel sad. They feel unreachable. And many spouses can feel a little lost. What now? Everyone has had intense experiences of solitude, loneliness, and frustration in cancer. Many survivors consider ending their relationships at some point to protect the spouse from having to carry the burden of illness further, to create an opportunity to grow for themselves, to define something as no longer acceptable, an addiction or abusive behavior, to make something equally as big as the cancer happen that's under your own control this time. And this can be so powerful an urge. I recommend that when you're tempted to end things, wait. I ask people to wait a year. I often want them to wait two years. No one needs two big life-changing events back to back. And talk to someone to sort out your feelings, to regain the capacity to have feelings, to make certain all big life decisions are made as much as possible 
outside the context of crisis and urgency are thought through and felt through. Learn to say what you need. I repeat that. Learn to say what you need. For the person who's been overwhelmed, the survivor or the partner or the family member or friend, sometimes it just feels easier to stay shut down, and that can go on a long time. So regaining closeness can take time and trying over and over again with family and friends as well as partners. Treatment is a crisis. Survivorship is longer running. It's hard to come out of that altered, adrenalinized state of crisis during treatment back into normal life, which can feel flat, feels like no adrenaline, so full of petty realities, empty the dishwasher one more time. One side can be reaching out and the other seems or feels even to themselves to be unreachable. And sometimes closeness is just not possible. People can be used up, done, drained, utterly spent, and for the partner to accept that without judging it too much can be a form of closeness. Sometimes the beginning of closeness is anger, getting something said aloud. Sometimes closeness is patience. Sometimes closeness is couple therapy, wanting to get things better, really better, asking for help. So, you know, take the car to the mechanic already, it feels like to some people. Let's just get this fixed. Sometimes important lessons can be learned that have nothing to do with cancer. You know, if the house does get hit by lightning, you can fix the part of the roof that was always leaking anyway. Um, I've heard some very moving stories about people finally getting things repaired in the relationship that were a problem for a long time before the cancer came along. Sometimes the beginning of closeness is learning how to live not shut down, how to live with the fears, how to have them without being completely swamped, how to let them pass through, how to let them just become part of a new background that's always there, how to let that lead to feeling more alive. Survivors often talk about being glad they were treated for cancer. I had a number of people talk about this, including one woman who had two cancers treated, and she said, Dr. Augenclos, I wouldn't have it any other way. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And she went on to say, I'm living so much better. So people mean a lot of things when they say things like this. Survivors can feel and partners and family and friends can feel more alive, even if the ups and downs of that make them easier or harder to get along with on any given day. They can feel clearer on what's important. They can feel more willing to speak up for themselves, even if it's clumsy learning how at the beginning. They can want to get their life more in line with their beliefs, their values, their vision, even if it means some new approaches. Uh, for this woman who felt she wouldn't have it any other way, it actually meant she did go out by herself the red sports car, the little red sports car. So glad she had done it. Uh, after cancer, a person can feel stronger about taking those little risks with a loved one, those little risks that can feel so big sometimes that we all have to take in order to feel close to someone. Taking the time, even a moment, taking the thought, taking the energy to find some way to show you understand or you want to understand. Closeness and intimacy are so connected to understanding and acceptance. And I'll stop there, and I wish you all the best in the challenges you're dealing with at this time. Thank you very much, Dr. Augenklaas. I know there'll be questions during the Q&A, but I want to thank you very much for the excellent presentation and um, really very comprehensive. And I now want to introduce our next speaker is Dr. Sharon Bober. And Dr. Bober is Director of Sexual Health Program, Perini Family Survivors Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Bober is going to cover a feeling anxious and worried regarding intimacy and sexuality after treatment, practical strategies to help survivors rediscover intimacy and improve sexuality, and helpful tips for finding resources and information. Dr. Bober? Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I appreciated what the uh, 
two speakers before me had to say. Um, I guess I just want to start by saying that I think sexuality and intimacy is a critical quality of life issue. Uh, the assumption I bring to this is that human beings are sexual. We are all sexual from birth to death, and that sexuality is really a part of who we are. It's not just what we do, um, and, but it's really about how we feel, how we express ourselves, and it's more than just a physical capacity for giving and receiving pleasure. I also think that, uh, well, we know that sexual, sexual problems, sexual challenges are some of the most common and enduring consequences of cancer treatment. Um, and interestingly, though, sex is really one of the first aspects of sort of normal life. Uh, that's often sort of disrupted after treatment. But the majority of survivors frequently say they were not prepared for changes in their sex life. So this is uh, certainly a common challenge, and it's also one that is often underplayed and certainly not talked about enough. So I'm thrilled that we're having this call. Uh, I also want to say that in terms of the assumptions about sexuality, sort of Often people are just very worried or anxious that what's happening to, to oneself, to one's partner, isn't normal, and that sexuality and what the, the choices that we make are, are wide and varied. Um, sexual practices are uh, wide-ranging, and certainly what's normal is only defined by the partner and oneself. So I don't think the issue has to do with how often am I having sex or what kind of sex am I having, but how does it feel and does it feel right to me? Uh, it's different than it used to be. If I'm not satisfied with how it is, uh, what can I do to rediscover and reinvigorate where I am? Certainly, um, I think it's important to note that we live in a culture where we are saturated with media images that give pretty unrealistic expectations about what, uh, again, normal is. That's before we have cancer as well as after. Um, and I think that certainly, although there are very graphic and explicit images that bombard us all the time, um, we don't live in a culture that uh, often gives us a lot of tips or techniques or skills about how to sort of talk about sexuality in our real body, in a real sort of way, in an authentic sort of way. So the issues that people have already touched on in terms of communication and expectations are sort of front and center in all of this. Um, so I guess I would just start by saying what are, you know, putting out there what some of the very common problems are. Um, and when we look at uh, the kinds of cancer treatments that, that affect sex organs, uh, male and female, and as well as um, whether that's sort of breast cancer, or prostate cancer, GYN cancer, um, common problems that we often see for women have to do with anything that causes uh, menopause or exacer exacerbation of menopausal symptoms. This is something that affects both younger women and older women, and we're looking at, you know, a severe loss of, immediate loss of estrogen, potentially putting someone into chemotherapy, induced menopause, for example. Um, women are dealing with vaginal dryness and decreased arousal difficulty reaching orgasm, um, and this is something that often women feel embarrassed talking about. Uh, women feel that it's hard to bring up. It's sort of an awkward topic, and often uh, with their clinicians, clinicians feel similarly. You know, it's not an easy thing to talk about. I don't want to bring it up if I don't want to sort of make the patient feel uncomfortable, and then often there's sort of a, sort of a sense of a stalemate um, sort of on the topic. Um, for men, certainly erectile dysfunction is uh, probably the most common issue after a variety of cancer treatments, and anything that uh, disrupts normal hormones for men and for women. More and more we see uh, standard of care, certainly after breast cancer, is with uh, long-term treatment with hormones sort of interrupting hormones, whether it's tamoxifen, um, and certainly with men, anti-androgen therapy with prostate cancer, for example, can have devastating effect on a man's sex life. So the good news is that there really are a variety of very practical strategies that can help survivors um, sort of manage many of these issues. Uh, the bad news is that often um, people don't know know how to access them, and, and often that goes for professionals as well. So um, just want to sort of throw out a couple, of, a couple of points and then more than happy to speak in more specific terms later. But for women in particular, thinking about all of the issues around intimacy and 
the problems that one encounters with vaginal dryness and other uh, menopausal symptoms. It's really important that women learn about using lubricants, whether that's um, vaginal moisturizers, potentially other things like uh, vaginal estrogen can be an option for people. Um, it's really important that women have some sense of what they can do in terms of reclaiming their bodies. So often I think uh, Dr. Achenklaas mentioned this issue of being sort of not having sort of the notion of being out of control. So you go through cancer treatment and one is feeling like an object that uh, was sort of very little control over a whole lot of the process. And I think one of the keys to rediscovering sexuality and intimacy has to do with getting a sense of being back um, in a position to make choices and to learn um, what feels good and what feels pleasurable and sort of to be back in a sense of uh, in control of one's own body. And uh, going along with that, I think probably the most important thing sort of up there with communication, as Deborah mentioned, has to do with what it means to redefine uh, the notion of sexuality after cancer treatment so that it might not be the same as it used to be, but that it's critical to have a sense of what is pleasurable and what feels good um, in one's body. And I think that one can learn to do that with a partner. Um, and one can also learn to, first and foremost, figure that out for him or herself. Um, so that whether that's self-touch in any kind of way, whether that's massage, getting your back scratched, whether that's just spooning, as Deborah said, or leading to something else altogether, um, the important part is rediscovering uh, what feels pleasurable um, and doing that in a way that's not pressured, nor is it trying to necessarily replicate um, how life used to be. Um, I also think that for men, um, erectile dysfunction is, I mean, certainly a, it's a pretty common problem um, altogether, um, and that after cancer treatment, um, especially cancer treatment that involves uh, damaging nerves to blood flow to the penis, um, it can be very frustrating, and men can feel just you know, that it's an enormous, it's obviously an enormous loss at times, but that the issues is that we are again confronted with Viagra and all the commercials that we see, um, and often men are given a prescription for such a thing, and it doesn't work. And I, I bring this up because it's very common that, uh, for example, Viagra or Cialis after prostate cancer isn't particularly effective because of nerve damage. And then men feel even more damaged. They feel awkward, embarrassed that they've somehow failed um, the treatment that it, that's out there. And uh, just to say that there actually are a variety of other treatments. So for example, um, there are penile vacuum devices that work extremely well. There are penile injections that men can in inject medication right directly into the, the side of the, the penis with a very small needle. Um, it's very effective. But if one doesn't know about some of the options, uh, then you can have a feeling that why even why even bring it up? There's nothing that can be done, and the sense of feeling damaged is uh, very, very painful. Um, I also just want to comment. Uh, I think Deborah mentioned earlier on this notion of getting to love one's body, um, one's new body, because um, our bodies change. Our bodies change regardless of whether we have cancer or not over time and having to accommodate and adjust to uh, the sort of existential reality of a body changing over a lifespan is tough enough for most of us. But it's really important to also, uh, I think, acknowledge that one can relearn um, how to have pleasure in one's body, one can rediscover intimacy and sexuality before we necessarily get to a point of loving our bodies. So I agree that that's certainly the goal, to feel comfortable in one's body and to get to a place where we feel good about our bodies. But I also tell people that you don't necessarily have to love your body or like to even look at a scar or touch a scar in order to feel um, pleasure. So for example, um, if one's had a surgery and body parts are changed or not there or scars, et cetera, you know, you can wear wear something that covers up. You know, you don't have to necessarily need to be completely naked, for example, or you don't need to necessarily um, have to replicate the same kinds of things you used to do um, in order to get in the mood. Um, and also just to speak about the notion of the mood, because I think that's Another very common issue, the issue of desire. People sit and talk about feeling that they just don't feel the same way anymore, you know, and uh, whether this is because of hormones, whether because of aging, 
It's a complicated recipe. There are lots of things that go into it. But I also think it's very important people realize that we don't necessarily have to be in the mood completely in order to um, have a sense of pleasure in our bodies. So for example, um, thinking about with one's partner or with oneself, how we can, again, take time to um, relax, to do some deep breathing, to find a way to have time for oneself that we're not pressured and harried, um, and to uh, whether it's taking a bath or you know having a back rub or a massage, re-engage with some sort of pleasure time for oneself or with a partner um, can often get one in the mood. So sort of by virtue of doing some of the behavior first as opposed to necessarily waiting for the mood to strike, um, I think is uh, sort of one way that we can sort of slowly um, get started again. Um, I also just want to sort of end by saying that, uh, you know, intimacy it certainly doesn't start in the bedroom. It certainly doesn't start with sexuality. Um, again, want to underscore what I think we all spoke about differently before is the notion of fostering communication and about how intimacy really starts with um, how we feel and what we say with a partner or how we talk about or think about these things with ourselves. So finding time and space to talk with a partner, um, thinking about a goal, something that we might want to ask for, um, focusing on something specific, and um, being open to hearing our partner's experience, being willing to sort of talk, and again, not in a pressured way at a time when we're supposed to jump into bed or do something about it, but be able to really uh, be a good listener and want to just talk about the experience. It's a really critical part of starting um, the process of getting back to uh, intimate life. I think that's probably where I'll stop for now. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Bober, for an excellent presentation, very comprehensive, and really, um, really covered a lot of these issues that I think people have questions about during the Q&A. I want to thank all of our speakers. It's really been an outstanding set of presentations. And now we have time for uh, questions. I know there are lots of questions in queue, so I'm going to ask Mary to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. I'm also going to ask Mary to bring all of our speakers on board so that everybody's available to answer your questions. Mary? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the 1 key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Lois. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you all for being willing to try to find better ways to cope with a difficult subject. Um, the goal for breast cancer is to reduce hormonal levels as much as possible, and those who are older and entirely menopausal and achieve castration have the most protection from recurrence, and I understand that. But I describe it, what it is like, as having had a lobotomy. Mm -hmm. Because breast cancer is an endocrine disease, I don't understand why there's no endocrinologist who specializes in breast cancer sitting with full authority on each patient's tumor board to advise the other specialists when considering treatment. And Lois, did you have a question that you wanted to yes. ask? Yes. Um, as Deborah and Dr. Ochenklaus said, closeness and intimacy is the bigger goal, um, but how do you do that when you have no sense of gender? Is there any scientific reason why if, if you're, the hormonal levels are being dropped as much as possible, you would have any sense of wanting sex or, or desiring sex, it's, it's like becomes a life sentence. Well, thank you very much. Lois, that's an excellent question. I'm going to, um, so I'm going to ask our speakers to address your question in a general way, and then perhaps um, we also can help you after the call as well. But that's an excellent question that you ask. Um, and Dr. Eichenklaus, would you like to address that? Well, I think there's, um, there's several parts to your question, really. One is, what, if anything, can be done to help someone with feelings of low desire? And I will ask maybe Dr. Bober to mm. comment on that. Mm. And another question you're asking is, how do you feel close to someone when you feel so changed by treatment? How do, how do you value yourself? I, um, I think feelings of gender are rooted in, in, in many parts of our experience, our memory, our preferences. Um, they're not completely governed by hormone levels 
issues of desire are more closely tied, but for neither sex are they 100% tied to hormone levels. Um, and feelings of wanting contact, comfort, and connectedness transcend gender completely. All people want some form of connectedness, affection, warmth, understanding. Um, so I think the more pointed part of your question is about how do I regain feelings of desire working out with a low hormone level. And, uh, and I would encourage you to explore a number of venues on that. Women in particular seem to be gifted at developing feelings of desire in the absence of levels of testosterone that, that might, you know, previously have been thought necessary. And it is, it's possible to learn to do that. People learn what they, they read things, they watch movies. They develop an inner fantasy life. They explore touching their bodies, as our first speaker talked about, to discover what can feel pleasurable in my new body, in my new self. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would emphasize the sort of self-query and, and, and the sharing of what you learn with your partner and asking your partner what works for them. Um, as parts of that process. Mm -hmm. Dr. Barber, would you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, certainly, you know, women's desire is certainly influenced in part by hormones, but we know that that's not the whole story. So, uh, you know, in fact, I was sitting with a woman just the hour before the phone call who had a very much of a similar dilemma. I, you know, I, I would say that, to echo everything Dr. Hockenglass just just described, what's important is to also acknowledge, you know, there's certainly a loss. There's no question that something feels very, very different, a kind of a flatness, a kind of a, a dullness maybe that was not there before. But that that does not mean that this is the end of the story, you know, that certainly there's plenty to still be written about how to re-engage in a sense of desire and that there are really a number of ways to start, whether that's with, you know, improving one's sense of self in terms of self-image, introducing sensual pleasures into one's daily life, um, you know, whether it's exercise, um, whether it's fantasy life, whether it's also just figuring out, you know, timing, fatigue, looking at the variety of medications one might be taking. I think there are just many factors that sort of um, are all ingredients in what might be this sort of sense of lack of desire. Um, and again, I also think that the, the key is to start by doing something, um, not to start by um, kind of waiting um, for desire to somehow reignite by itself. And I think that a kind of very um, active approach to, again, thinking about sort of the primacy of action um, as, as being what can then jumpstart feeling um, can be a, a very important way in. I just want to add that um, it takes a lot of patience. It's not sex is not going to be the same as it was before mm -hmm. and it's going to take effort where it might have been effortless before right. um, and you know you don't you may not have the desire but your partner may trigger it uh, when my husband I had no desire when my husband got in bed with me in the hospital and started cuddling but just being close to him he started mm -hmm. the desire going and so maybe he has to be the starter for a while because I'm not into it um, but have the patience to really look for what works for you? And it might not be the first 10 things you try, but it might be number 11. So you have to have the patience to really explore things and, and find what works for you. Another thing that I'm hearing, actually, and perhaps um, our speaker's going to address this as well, is that this is a very frustrating, it's a change. It, it, um, it um, sort of, a lot of uh, many survivors have a sense of anger or, or upsetness that this has happened. Um, how could this happen? Um, and I wonder if, Dr. Barber, if you could just address that, that sense that people often have mm -hmm. of how could this, before one can even start to move mm -hmm. forward in trying things, mm -hmm. that there's this... Well, well I, would, I think that one of, this, one of the ways that I think often we get set up for that frustration is because we, don't, we aren't all given the sort of, the expectations aren't there about that this can be an issue on the front end, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think often there's a sense that nobody really told me or nobody really, I didn't really get a sense of what was going to happen. And, you know, again, in the context of, you know, a potentially life-threatening diagnosis and getting started in 
going with, you know, saving a life, often somehow, you know, talking about sex is far from the top of the list. But, uh, you know, so I think some of the frustration comes from that. And then again, I think a lot of the frustration comes from realizing that it's not the same. You know, um, things aren't as easy as they were. As, as Deborah just said, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I used to be able to get an erection and, you know, I didn't have to think about it. And the reality is now it takes some work. It takes some practice. Um, you know, for women, it's, you know, having an orgasm, you know, now it's, you know, it takes some work, it takes some time. And, and again, knowing that that is all true and normal is critical. So that, uh, you know, again, in counterpoint to the sort of the images we see on TV where most of these things are not exactly as they look, but that, you know, sexuality, intimacy, pleasure, all of that is something that does take time. It does take work. You need to be with a partner with you with whom you feel safe, that you trust, that you can laugh about things when they're not going well, and that you can be creative um, when something doesn't work, um, can really help diffuse some of that frustration. Well, thank you for that wonderful question, very, very eloquent question. Thank you very much. And we could talk about that question all afternoon because there are so many different parts to it. So thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Elizabeth. Hi. Um, I'm calling from California, and I wanted to... Um, kind of ask a question. A lot of the times when people talk about intimacy and sexuality with, with um, or after cancer, they're talking about people with existing partners, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever. And what about people who are single? I mean, it presents a whole different set of, of questions. When do you tell somebody? How do you show somebody your new body? And I, I was hoping that maybe you could kind of address that and, and give me you know, or the rest mm -hmm. of us some, some information about that. Mm -hmm. That wonderful question was this. Excellent. Dr. Bober, do you want to start? Sure. And I, this is something I, I always try to uh, sort of try to review when I'm talking about that I'm not being overly uh, assumptive around, you know, issues of partnership because I think that lots of people, you know, again, we're all sexual and we're not all in partnered relationships and it's really important not to make that assumption. Um, but I think that in terms of um, being single and, and thinking to oneself, you know, how do I bring this up? I just had this conversation with someone and she said, well, you know, it's hardly something you want to bring up on the first date. <laughs> Um, and sort of when do you do that? But I, I think it, the answer to a lot of that goes back to um, not sex, but it goes back to what it means to be um, with someone that you feel like you can trust, that you feel is going to um, be able to hear this and, and that you feel comfortable with and that you have to listen to your gut, you know, as if when you're dating in any kind of context and you're sort of making decisions about whether this is someone that you feel you can open up to and who wants to listen, who you can listen to, and that you feel um, a kind of a sense of, uh, that you can be honest and open and that, you know, you don't feel afraid. And I think that really in many ways kind of uh, guides the, um, the sense of when you can share this experience. Um, lots of people say, well, I want to get it out there in the, sort of at the beginning because I don't want to hide it. And, I, you know, I think that there's no right or wrong answer, I guess, basically. It's, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer when you disclose that you had a mastectomy or that, you know, you had Hodgkin's disease. I think the key is when do you feel that, uh, when do you feel comfortable uh, that you're with someone you can trust? And um, certainly I also just would say that many times one's worries about what the partner will think um, are much, much worse than what one's potential partner actually um, perceives. So, you know, the issues around, you know, will they think I'm, will he or she feel that I'm attractive? Um, is this someone, you know, are they going to go running and screaming, you know, when they see my body. And the fact is most of us um, don't have perfect bodies. And that, um, you know, again, what makes someone feel close um, is partly what you see physically, but a lot of it is how you feel. I mean, most of it is our, in our brain, in our perception of, you know, whether we care about somebody, if we want to be with that person. So I think that um, the issues of disclosure, there's not really a right or a wrong. It's about when you feel comfortable, when you feel that you can trust someone, and that, uh, again, many times our worries about what a potential partner might feel um, are much more uh, severe than what, what a potential partner um, actually perceives. Deborah, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually currently single, so I've been dealing with this, and I think um, the when is not as important to me as the how. Mm -hmm. um, how do I tell somebody? And I, I'm very careful to use I statements and to kind of preface it by um, I wasn't sure 
when I should tell you this or how I should tell you this, but we're at a point in our relationship where I feel like you should know this about me. Um, because sometimes people get angry that you didn't share it up front. Um, and, you know, then you can come back with, well, I just felt that on the first date that would be overwhelming for you. But I'm just, whatever I say, I'm always very careful to use I statements because I want to share with them my thinking on how I came to decide to tell them it at this point and, you know, how I feel about sharing the information. To me, it's very personal information, um, and it, um, it's just part of who I am. And to me, it's a small part of who I am. The, the physical part, what's more important to me is who I am as a person. And if I feel that that other person cares for me as a person, then I'm more likely to, to share the diagnosis that I've had with them. I know you've worked on getting to that place. Do you want to say a little bit to the audience about how you did that? <clears throat> Trial and error. <laughs> I have had guys run away, you know, on the, on the first date. And I had one guy who just stopped talking to me, um, because probably because he didn't know what to say after that, but he was quiet for the rest of the date, and then he never called me again. Um, and and so you have to tell yourself that, you know, well, you probably didn't want to be with that person anyway because they couldn't handle it. Um, so it, it's hard to find people, uh, for me anyway, it's hard to find people, period, in, in the dating scene um, at my age, but uh, to find people who I feel love me for who I am and are comfortable with me for who I am has been difficult for me. Uh, but I'm, I'm comfortable being alone, too. So it's not, it's not like if I never find another partner, that's going to be devastating for me. If I never find another partner, so be it. Um, I would like to. I would like to share the rest of my life with somebody. Um, but to me, I could be alone and be happy. So... Everybody's different, whether you know whether you uh, are comfortable with that or not. And I think being comfortable with yourself um, puts out the energy to the other person that they'll be more comfortable with you. And I found that to be true. That if I'm comfortable with somebody else and very open with them, that they tend to relax and be more open with me because first dates are always very anxiety-provoking. Uh -oh. Our next question. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Um, Elizabeth, that was a great question. Our next question. Our next question comes from Lois. Hi. Thank you for taking my question. I sort of want to go on the medical part of this. Uh, you mentioned about uh, for the vaginal dryness, take, I used uh, Vagisil, but I was, you mentioned a vaginal estrogen, and I've always steered away from anything with estrogen. Uh, due to having uh, have had breast cancer and all this. And then also, do you have any suggestions at, with the vaginal dryness uh, with the follow-up bladder infections, which I get from this? Mm. Um, well, I think just to say that uh, the issue, the question about vaginal estrogen is, uh, is complicated and that most importantly, I think it's important to go to speak with your doctor um, about his or her recommendation on that. Um, there are... Uh, there really are, there's, there's always a question about how much, if any, uh, vaginal estrogen um, is absorbed systemically. And so I think that's a question that really has to be taken up um, between a woman and her doctor as to whether that's a reasonable option or not. Um, you know, certainly there are uh, lubricants that women use, um, and then the sort of, as you're talking about the vaginal moisturizers, the sort of a bioadhesive gel that can keep the, the vaginal tissue uh, moist over time. Um, to, Lois, what was the other part of the question you had? Um, what was the other part of your anything question? Anything uh, that I can do to prevent this. Oh, the yeast, in, did you say, was it the... No, uh, just, uh, just bladder, just the regular bladder infection, which I hadn't had for years, and so I, so I started taking aromacin. And now I'm getting, oh, four to five infections a year probably. And I right. don't like taking antibiotics all the time. Right. You know, again, I think that, um, you know, this is not my area of expertise in terms of the bladder stuff, but I think that women do, there are sort of a variety of, uh, 
A variety of things that, I mean, the fact is the pH changes, there are all, all kinds of changes, that this is not an uncommon problem. Um, lots of women find that if they drink a lot of water, some women use a, a variety of different kinds of, you know, I don't know what the sort of simple answer is on that, but I think that keeping yourself well hydrated and, um, you know, again, there are certain, I think, alternative um, uh, therapies or sort of interventions that women try to use to sort of maintain good bladder health. But, you know, unfortunately, I think for some women, it becomes something that you're prone to, and then you're dealing with uh, kind of management after that. So I don't know if anyone else has a sort of, Deborah, if you have any insights about that. The only thing I've heard is that um, if you make the, the um, pH of your bladder more acidic by right. drinking like cranberry, cranberry juice, juice and things like that, yeah. that you're less likely to have an infection because the bacteria doesn't like that environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, similarly on that note, um, some women say, "My, I think uh, sort of yogurt." Am I? Is a, <laughs> I'm trying to think what the other pieces to that sort of the same thing with sort of the acidity and um, that kind of thing, but. Um, no, that's a, it's a really vexing problem. It's, it's annoying. Um, actually, what we would suggest, actually, that you might want to do is also, of course, let's go, go to your treating health care team or sure. physician. Um, may recommend you see a urologist, somebody, or your doctor and see if they recommend, your gynecologist and urologist may recommend some method to treat this so that you actually feel more confident about, about the care you're getting. So I would definitely recommend that. Our next question. Our next question comes from Dottie. Yes, um, I was wondering about oral sex. Um, when you have like low blood counts, um, like low white cell counts, is, is that like dangerous to do that? Um, I just didn't know. I didn't ask my doctor about that and thought I could ask here. Uh, so... I think, I mean, certainly with our bone marrow transplant survivors, we talk about platelets usually having to be at least 50,000. Um, that's sort of typical rule of thumb. Um, that's in terms of you're talking about low white blood cell count. Is that you're worried about infection? Is that that's the, clearly the question? Is that you know? Sorry, I would say certainly. I think in general, um, you know. I guess the question is how low is your white blood cell count, and I guess you really need to speak with your physician about that. Um, I mean, certainly if, you, if it's very sort of dangerously low, um, you know, taking precaution for infection across the board is important. So I guess I, my first sense would be to, to go back to your physician um, to talk about that in particular. I think one thing to keep in mind, um, anytime you have any type of sexual activity, Whenever they're sharing of fluids, there's always a risk of infection. So if there's the potential for sharing fluids, then you want to use a barrier method. And you can use a dental dam for oral sex. Um, and for regular sex, you know, use condoms. But that's just a good rule of thumb. And, I, and generally, if your absolute neutrophil count is less than 500, that's considered by NCI to be a grade 4 neutropenia. And then you want to be very, very careful because that's, uh, you're, you're at a very high risk for infection. More from the bacteria that lives in your own body than the bacteria that lives in someone else's. Very important issue to really and feel comfortable now that you've asked the questions here to go back to your treating healthcare team. It's fine to ask those questions and, um, and to really get the answers that you need for your specific situation. Our next question. Our next question comes from Evelyn. I should like to ask two quick questions. One was basically covered, but I, I guess I'm looking for more information on lubricants or dryness, if you could be any more specific since I have no knowledge of those. And the last part of it is, are you aware of any impact that pain medication, the um, Oxycontin, for instance, uh, has on uh, the sexual intimacy. Excellent question. Dr. Boper? Um, well, certainly in terms of lubricants, there are really three basic categories. There are water-based, um, silicon, and glycerin. Um, water-based are, you can buy at your sort of local pharmacy and something like KY Jelly or Astroglide is a water-based lubricant. Um, I, I typically caution um, women after uh, cancer treatment, if especially pH changes and you're prone to yeast infection, to stay away from glycerin-based 
uh, lubricant because I think that if you're prone to yeast infection, glycerin acts as a sugar and can promote a yeast infection, so I would stick with something water-based. Um, certainly, I think that um, the bioadhesive uh, bio moisturizer that's additional to a kind of a, a lubricant that you would use during sexual activity, something like Replens, again, you can buy at your local pharmacy, and that's a, uh, you insert that um, like you would a tampon and that, um, you know, two to three times a week and that over the course of several weeks, it really sort of can build up um, moisture in the vaginal walls and can really be helpful over time. Um, so both of those, uh, you know, and I think, again, in terms of lubricants, lubrication with, with sex, I think it's important to know to lubricate all surfaces um, and that uh, to keep it handy and to, you know, know that with the water-based lubricants, um, you need to add water sometimes so that to sort of not, you know, Often people complain that sort of things get dry quickly and that you can sort of use more and to know how to use it properly. Um, there was a second part of that question, too, about uh, pain meds. Pain meds. Um, Dr. Arkenclass, you could probably address this as well, but from what I understand, I think that that can very much, the sort of opioids can very much um, decrease um, sexual arousal. Um, certainly the issues of orgasm, desire can be very much, uh, I think, blunted um, by use of medication like the OxyContin. Yeah, my thoughts on pain meds were, would be to, to, to listen to what your body tells you. Some people might feel, depends where the pain is and how bad it is and how big the dose of pain medication is. If, it's, if you're in pain and you take a pain medication, you're going to feel better. Some people might even feel a little euphoric or disinhibited. It might be a better time All right. for them to engage in some form of touching or, or sexual behavior. And, and other people who might be dealing with a more serious pain problem, taking pain medication on a very regular basis, often feel loss of, of interest, and might be more interested in touching and less sort of complete sexual behavior or might need to do more work in order to be able to be sexual on a sort of a standing pain medication regimen. Mm -hmm. If I'm there's a pain specialist in your hospital, that'd be a good person to ask further questions of because uh, they certainly would be talking to a lot of people in a lot of relationships who are using a lot of pain medication. But also, just to sort of add to that too, I agree that I think sometimes, you know, if Pain is certainly, if there's discomfort during sex, it's one of the fastest ways to lose interest in sex. Yeah. So that, um, you know, all the issues around figuring out what the right kind of pain management is is critical, whether that means, you know, taking two Motrin 15 minutes before or whether that means you're working on a sort of a, a dosing of a much more heavy-duty medication like OxyContin. But, but certainly um, if there's pain, and certainly pain during sex with women often, again, with vaginal dryness, et cetera, is very common, um, it's not surprising that all of a sudden one feels like, you know, who wants to have sex if it hurts. So it's really important to sort of tease that issue out. Yeah, we, we, I think we all want to be very clear and do not recommend for women to have sex if it is hurting That's you right. yeah. because it has such a powerful effect of causing women to want to avoid mm -hmm. any kind of sexual contact at all. So a few negative experiences can create months of avoidance. Mm -hmm. So if it starts to hurt, you have to stop and do something about it so that it doesn't hurt. And it may mean not continuing the behavior that's hurting you, whatever mm -hmm. that is. And then, again, <laughs> dovetail on that, um, I would also underscore to do something about it because I think um, sometimes when then, you know, it hurts, we stop, you don't have sex, and months and months go by, which is, again, not uncommon. Um, it's like anything else when you get out of practice. It's really hard to start up again. So um, knowing that there are things you can do, people you can talk to, resources, out there, um, it's real important to actually then try to move ahead and do something about it. And I, I agree, and I think it's very important that, you know, if you have a problem with painful intercourse that you seek help from somebody, and if your, your physician or your nurse can't help you, ask them to refer you to somebody who can. It may be a simple issue like lubrication or, or even changing position. There are many different ways to have sex that... Um, I never knew about before um, until I got into to actually researching the matter. But um, there are things that can be done to help you, and, and you need to find the right person who has the information to help you. 
But I really want to thank all of our speakers. Really, this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank you for all of your outstanding presentations. I also want to thank all of the people who asked such wonderful questions. And really, I really a credit to each of you for asking the questions that you've asked. Some of your questions we've answered in part, and there are other parts of them that you'll need to take back to your treating healthcare team. And the message that we're giving to all of you is that if you are having uh, any problems or discomfort, that you want to go back to your treating healthcare team and utilize all the resources um, that are available through the program, all the information you've gotten from us, call all of us for additional help. We don't want anyone to feel that you're alone in trying to cope with this and realize that there are many things, as Dr. Barber said, that you can do to get help so that you can enjoy um, intimacy and sexuality in your life. It's very important for each of you. Now, I want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour education program, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one-hour program. And so with that in mind, I do want to remind you all about all the services that you can access after this program for free, all the different organizations that have made this program possible, and information that you have about them. I just want to mention um, a bit about Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a organization that has a staff of 40 master's level trained oncology social workers. And we are here to provide a host of services, from practical and financial assistance to counseling and support to really help talk with you about issues and concerns like we're talking about today that are of concern to all of you. We also uh, run uh, support groups, um, both uh, telephone and online support groups. And many people find a support group a very helpful way of getting, uh, getting help with, their, with concerns and issues they may have. We also have lots of materials and, that are available to you. And we have a very uh, website with lots of information as well. So there's lots of fact sheets and information that you can get from, from this organization. And, and Cancer Care is a part of many cancer organizations that are out there, many of which are represented in partnering to make this program possible today, that you can access. So as we conclude the program, I would not want anyone to feel you're alone in trying to get help with any concern or issue that you have. So please don't, the call is ending soon. You're not alone. You're now part of a whole community of support, and that support is there to help you um, find your way. And um, also, I want to remind you that we do have a part three of this program. There's one more workshop in this series, um, and it's called Survivors to Family, Friends, and Loved Ones. And that program is occurring on June 24th from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you haven't told your family and friends about the program, or if you'd like to sign up for it yourselves, or family and friends are on the call today, please do sign up for that program. You also have in your materials other programs that are being offered in the future. I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the program. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.